Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Masha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Bejnov. If you spent any time reading books, watching movies about, or traveling to India, chances are you've come across the depiction of an urban slum somewhere along the way. In most of these popular portrayals, slums are dens of inequity and deprivation. Citizens appear to be trapped in a vortex of poverty, bad governance, and corruption. In all of these stories, politicians and their henchmen appear to have the last laugh, extracting whatever they can from citizens who have few exit options. A new book by the political scientists Adam Auerbach and Tharik Thatchel, Migrants and Machine Politics, informs us that much of what we think we know is based on myth and not fact. India slums, home to hundreds of millions of residents, are actually home to intricate democratic political systems in which patrons, clients, and brokers are engaged in an everyday contest over representation and responsiveness. To talk more about their book, Adam and Tharik join me from Washington and Philadelphia, respectively. Gentlemen, congrats on the book, and thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us, man. Thanks so much for having us. So, so Tharik, let me start with you and start with the big picture, right? As I mentioned at the top, you know, we have these popular accounts of slums where, you know, residents are depicted as these passive actors. They're essentially sort of pawns in a game that's been rigged by these kind of corrupt politicians and criminal elements. And they're kind of these black holes for governance, right? Your book... Uh, throughout flips the script on this, right? So tell us a little about what slums look like from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. Uh, yeah, Milan, thanks again for, for having us. And I think the question that you're asking is one that really began Adam and my conversations when we first started working together back in 2013. Um, a lot of our conversations came out of a kind of general dissatisfaction with how uh, you know, often poor urban uh, populations in India were por portrayed. Um, Adam was finishing his first fantastic book on uh, on informal settlements in Jaipur and Bhopal. And I, at the time, was working on another neglected and often misunderstood urban population, which is uh, seasonal or circular migrants, um, who now, of course, uh, post-COVID became, uh, became much more popularly visible. But when we were talking about kind of the world, the, the many millions of, of Indian slum residents, um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, there were kind of two broad kinds of portrayals, both of which we felt were inaccurate. The first is the one that you referenced in your introduction, which is that of the popular press in India, this kind of Bollywoodized vision uh, of urban slum settlements as kind of ruled by dons or these thuggish kingpins who basically um, enforce uh, violence and through violence kind of enforce uh, whatever order that is in slums. Uh, or whether those figures are not present, this is kind of a chaotic uh, picture where slum settlements are often kind of, you know, either lawless or, or poorly or, or, or ungoverned spaces. Uh, there's a second strand of, which is the kind of academic scholarship within our home discipline of political science, 
in which poor urban residents are often seen as these voters who are kind of easily bought off by wily political elites, often during election time. So, you know, this phenomenon of literally called vote buying, um, which was thought to kind of subvert democracy because, uh, you know, these uh, these kind of disoriented uh, kind of slum residents who lack, you know, political connections or social clout uh, are easily kind of swayed and bought off for cheap with kind of trinkets, you know, gifts uh, around election time. Uh, and so in many ways, they kind of serve as um, a, a population through which uh, leaders can subvert democracy, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, buy them for, for very little. And, uh, you know, you get accounts of that even in the Indian, you know, popular press around election time of the kind of things that political parties might do in slums. They might hold rallies and serve food or distribute liquor. And, uh, you know, the, the assumption is that those efforts uh, kind of sways the vote um, in these uh, in these constituencies. And neither account really squared with what Adam and I saw from this kind of worm's eye view. I mean, especially if somebody takes the time to visit um, slum settlements, especially between the vote. They're very rarely visited between the vote. They're often, you know, visited just at election time. Uh, but if you take the time to do that, as Adam did for his first book, and as we did for over 100 settlements in Jaipur and Bhopal for this book, what, what emerges is a picture that's very different from that, you know, far from being kind of chaotic or lawless spaces. Um, you know, politics and slums, we found to be highly active, highly organized, and highly competitive. So if you think of like ordinary residents, most of whom in, in our settlements are first generation migrants, both men and women, you know, not only do they vote at incredibly high rates, but between the vote, they're regularly organizing to uh, make claims, uh, to try and secure goods uh, or services for their settlement or to fight eviction efforts. And these efforts are often spearheaded by local leaders who emerge from within their communities. These leaders in turn are often connected to mainstream political parties. So in Jaipur and Bhopal, the cities we study, that's the, the Congress and the BJP. Uh, and importantly, these residents, uh, you know, are actively wielding the competition, um, the forces of political competition. So far from kind of under the thumb of one leader or one don, uh, the kind of forces of political competition, the many local leaders who are competing for their affection uh, and, you know, the many political parties who are kind of competing for their votes, Residents kind of wield those forces of competition to actually shape the political networks that govern them in the city and to demand accountability and representation within city politics in ways that defy stereotypes. So uh, for us, that was, you know, this, this kind of looking at how organized and competitive politics was um, in, uh, in the slums of Jaipur and Bhopal and how residents, ordinary residents, kind of use those forces of competition to sow the seeds of some amount of accountability um, really inverted the kind of common portrayal of these spaces, uh, uh, both in the kind of popular press and in political science scholarship. So, Adam, I want to bring you in here. Tharik sort of reminded us how, you know, we have this popular conception of machine politics in the study of political science. And this very stylized machine looks very different in the context of, of the parts of urban India where, where you guys have been hanging out. The focus of this particular book are squatter settlements or kachibasti. And, and even within the world of urban settlements, these are very particular kinds of places. And I'm wondering if you could just reflect for a second on why you decided to base your study in these particular areas of the two cities that you study, you know, Bhopal, which is in Madhya Pradesh, and Jaipur, which is in Rajasthan. Absolutely, Mohan. Thank you so much for that really important question. 
I mean, so just to put this in larger context, you know, somewhere between 65 million and 100 million people in India cities live in slum settlements, and they're they're sort of enumerated, you know, with that term slum settlement. But really, the moment that you walk into these neighborhoods um, in India cities and you start sort of going to different neighborhoods in different parts of the city, you're immediately confronted with the really incredible heterogeneity of these types of neighborhoods. Um, if you go to the old parts of cities, you know, in cities like Jaipur and Bhopal, the two cities that we you know did our research in. Um, in the old part of the city, in the Purana Shahir, you know, these are these are areas of the city that are, you know, oftentimes several hundred years old. You know, people have property rights. The streets are gridded. You know, people have some access to services, um, but they're oftentimes enumerated by the city as slum settlements because they're low-income neighborhoods. Um, if you go to the outskirts of uh, both of these cities, um, you'll you'll confront urban villages. Um, you know, areas that were were actually villages, and as the city continued to expand it outwards. Um, they were engulfed, you know, by the city. They too are enumerated um, as slum settlements. We we felt it was really important to define what specific type of informal settlement um, we're studying, you know, for the book, um, and that is squatter settlements. Um, these are neighborhoods in India cities that either completely lack property rights, um, or they exhibit very weak forms of property rights. Um, for instance, they might be notified. Um, so at the very least, the city or the state government sort of acknowledges them um, as a slum settlement, giving them some protections um, from unannounced eviction. Uh, but really sort of this informality in housing um, is one of the key defining criteria um, of squatter settlements. Um, another one is the environmental sensitivity of the places that they're often located in the city. Um, they're very often located on the, um, on the edges of rivers that are prone to flooding. Um, you know, in Jaipur, you know, going up the side of mountains, uh, in Bhopal, you know, surrounding um, the Baratalab, you know, the big lake um, at the center of the city. Um, these are densely planned um, or unplanned neighborhoods, I should say, um, that were essentially greenfield sites. Um, um, Low-income migrants moving to the city, um, seeing an empty plot of land that may have been, um, you know, public land, um, or in some instances, it's private land. Uh, but people see uh, empty plots. Um, they set up their jugi, um, their um, sort of you know informal house, um, and the the settlement expands outward in this very sort of amorphous, um, unplanned way. Um, most of these settlements uh, emerged in the late 1970s and early 1980s in Jaipur and Bhopal. Um, and so, for our focus um, on how are low income migrants moving from the countryside to India cities, contributing to this sort of breakneck speed urbanization. These are really sort of the epicenters um, of these social and political transformations. Um, people moving to the city, moving to squatter settlements in particular. And in just a matter of uh, decades, you know, Tarek and I come in and we're doing our field work, um, but it allows us to trace, just given the newness of these communities, um, from point A, when people come in squats, and then after the dust of squatting settles, the emergence of informal authority, the organization of people within the community, um, to improve their material well-being and improve their security in the city. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really important for us to you know define the types of informal settlements that we're studying, um, and you know squatter settlements were were, were so important uh, for our study because of the sort of newness and migratory fluidity that that really defines them. So, so Adam, let me ask you about the first layer, which is how brokers emerge in city politics, right? And what's so fascinating about the book is that. 
again, you kind of upend the traditional idea that citizens are beholden to these very charismatic, autocratic slumlords, right? Your argument appears to be instead that, look, actually brokers are locked into this very competitive race against one another to represent citizens who are their quote-unquote clients, right? And here, you know, contrary to expectation, it is not ethnicity. It is not caste that bonds citizens to brokers but rather the latter's reputation for getting stuff done. Um, now, this puts you kind of at odds with a lot of what our kind of conventional wisdom is in political science, uh, including work on India. Did the absence of identity politics surprise you? Yeah, thanks so much, Milan. And um, I think, you know, on, on the issue of, you know, leadership selection, the role of ethnicity, the role of competence, um, you know, Tarek, you know, had mentioned this word competition um, earlier in the conversation, and that really just underpins the entire sort of formation of these networks that we're so interested in. Um, you know, as he said, these, these actors are just absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, not to repeat um, their sort of grassroots sort of status, but, um, you know, they emerge um, in several different ways that we highlight in our, in our qualitative field work um, that um, is refl then, then reflected in sort of who emerges as a leader um, and the role of ethnicity in that. Um, we, we noticed that there are sort of two key pathways through which um, informal leaders emerge in these settlements. Um, the first are through these uh, informal elections um, in the community, um, as well as deliberative um, community meetings where people in the, in the community will come together, um, decide um, who they want to be their informal leader. Um, there's also these sort of everyday moments um, where individual um, residents and their families in the community have to decide you know, we're faced with these barrage of problems. Um, we don't have a water connection. We don't have an electricity connection. The monsoon rains came and washed away part of the road. Who are we going to turn to and seek help from um, in the neighborhood? Um, and these everyday decisions then aggregate into a distribution of support um, for informal leaders. Um, so exactly as you mentioned, you know, our first sort of empirical chapter, chapter two of the book, asks this question, who emerges as a slum leader? Um, very often, these, these actors, like India slum leaders, um, who are oftentimes referred to as brokers in the academic literature, are sort of treated statically, um, that there's low-income voters, um, there's a state um, apparatus and bureaucrats um, that are very difficult to access for the poor, um, that are very dismissive to the poor, and it creates this marketplace um, for brokers. Um, but there is, as you mentioned, intense everyday competition among these informal leaders um, for the affections and following of ordinary residents in the community. So we ask in that chapter, you know, what are, what are the ingredients, what are the preferences among residents over who they turn to and seek help from and follow? Um, and, you know, as you note, um, really competence, the ability to take up the problems of residents in the community, turn to state um, institutions, um, extract things from the states, um, and bring them back to the settlements, um, is, is the key criteria. Um, and our, you know, the way that we go about operationalizing or understanding competence really hinges on education. Um, these communities, um, you know, 60% uh, of the residents in our communities, for instance, um, are able to read and write. Um, about, uh, the average resident um, in our survey sample was educated for about five years. Um, and so the ability to read and write among informal leaders um, within these communities where education levels are quite low um, is, is, a, is a really important quality um, in being able to write petitions and being able to understand eligibility criteria. Um, so what we find both in our qualitative field work um, as well as our, our survey research 
um, is that ordinary residents cue most strongly into this idea of the need for education among their informal leaders. And things like ethnicity um, sort of take a back seat to that. Um, and you know, these communities, one of the many reasons why they're so fascinating is they're incredibly ethnically diverse um, in terms of jati or subcaste. Um, in terms of the religion um, or of residents, um, and in terms of the region of origin that people have moved from. Um, so just to give you a sense of that, the average settlement in our sample um, has um, what we refer to as a fractionalization score of 0.8 for caste, meaning that in the average settlement, if you randomly pick two people from that community, there's an 80% chance that they would be from a different caste. Um, that number is about 0.2 for re religion, so most of the settlements in our sample have Hindus and Muslims, um, you know, living within the community itself. And that number is about 0.3 for region of origin. Um, so these are incredibly diverse settlements where many of the expectations from the literature would suggest that, you know, residents are going to care a lot um, about ethnicity, that they're going to prefer to go to slum leaders who share the ethnic identities of themselves. Um, and what we find in the survey data is Yes, indeed, there is some evidence that people have these generalized preferences um, to have a co-ethnic slum leader. But in reality, very few of them actually ha even have that opportunity. Um, only 30% of our survey residents even have someone of their ethnicity in terms of caste to turn to, yet they're turning to informal leaders at very much higher rates. Um, and we find that education as this key indicator of competence and efficacy in problem solving uh, trumps ethnicity in the formation of informal authority um, in these communities. So, yeah, we most certainly found that surprising. Um, and I, I don't think, um, you know, we necessarily find that as a, you know, as a cosmopolitanness in the city. Um, it really comes from, you know, these compulsions of needing to get things done in contexts where there's, you know, there's, there's so much need for basic services um, and infrastructure. Hey, Grant the Monster listeners, thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I mean, you know, you spoke very eloquently about the agency that citizens have, but brokers, of course, have their own forms of agency too, right? I mean, they have to determine when they get requests for help, which residents are going to prioritize, right? But here too, what's interesting is that you find ethnicity is not really the central variable. Brokers are prioritizing residents uh, basically based on, you know, who among them are best positioned to amplify their reputations as effective problem solvers, right? So, Tharik, maybe I could just ask you this question, you know, who are these residents who are best positioned to amplify a broker's rep uh, re reputation? And, and, and on what basis can brokers make that determination? Yeah, if I could just zoom out for a second from that question, Milan, and say that, you know, I think one important um, aspect of this is taking, as you said, brokers' own agency and motivation seriously. And I think often, again, we reduce these, you know, kind of intermediary figures as they're kind of often described as either kind of these shadowy operatives or these kind of, you know, mechanical cogs in a party machine. You know, they are not the people who um, have kind of larger political ambitions. 
that's not the case you know so these slum residents who yeah, ascend into leadership positions when we surveyed them one of the interesting things that we found is almost all of them uh see their leadership activities as the beginning not the end of their political career they really think of the the kind of uh, leadership position within the settlement as a platform to kind of launch their careers into the wider world of city politics now for most of them that step requires um, something which uh, over, you know, the, the vast majority, I think it was over 85% of us, our leaders said was the thing they wanted the most, which was a, a formal position or PUD in a political party. And in order to get that PUD, um, and in fact, about two thirds of the leaders in our sample actually had already got a PUD. And one of the interesting things we're able to do with our survey is actually track um, the kind of political careers of these uh, of these slum leaders, many of them have actually held multiple PUDs. Many of them have actually ascended to city or district-wide posts, which are you know quite significant in the in the Indian political landscape. And uh, given that there is a reality, so I think that's important to recognize that 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 many leaders actually can and do have political careers. And so, given that that's the kind of basis and motivation for entering into these leadership activities, they are thinking about what is it that we bring to political parties. And they're very matter of fact about that. The ones that we interviewed in the book repeatedly noted that you know what we bring is popular appeal. What we bring is what one of them called in English actually mouth publicity. We are the people who can actually bring, uh, you know communities, uh, because we are in these dense communities that vote at very high rates. Uh, you know, this is this is our kind of calling card. We can't bring political finance, uh, you know, we can't bring kind of other attributes, but this is what we can bring. And so that has downstream consequences for the kinds of residents that they really look uh, to serve and bring into their coalition. As you mentioned, you know, they can't do everything for everyone. They are also operating in conditions of scarcity and uh, and difficulty and informality. So on what basis do they choose? And once again, we, you know, the kind of larger kind of scholarship might uh, on political science might might expect that, and even a lot of the scholarship on, on Indian politics within India would might suggest that they're going to fo focus on people from their caste or their faith. Those are going to be the people who may be the shortest bets. And so those are the people they're going to kind of disproportionately um, pay attention to. We actually find striking what we call kind of um, ethnic indifference in the book. So uh, brokers really don't seem to uh, disproportionately prioritize members of their caste, even of their faith, even of their region. Instead, what they are really looking for are those residents with kind of their own mouth publicity, those residents who are best positioned um, to kind of spread word of what the broker has been able to do, of the competence that Adam was talking about. And these residents tend to be what we find and document in the book, residents who are kind of deeply socially embedded within these communities. So those could be, for example, residents who've been longtime residents, residents who've been veterans of the, of the settlement relative to kind of newcomers. Um, and so we find that, you know, disproportionately people who've been in the settlements longer are the ones that brokers tend to gravitate towards. They're the ones who probably have the most friends, um, the, the, the most people who they'll actually uh, kind of uh, advertise the broker's efforts to. We also find that, uh, you know, residents who hold particular kinds of occupations that embed themselves within the fabric of settlements. So actually one category of resident that's very pervasive that we thought that we found to be kind of uh, disproportionately targeted are residents who hold jobs that put them inside the slums. These could be slum storekeepers, people who, who kind of run shops and informal kirana dukans within the, within the basti. And so these are not like for us the kind of 
obvious or intuitive markers of favoritism in Indian politics that you would go to these kind of socially central residents or these residents who hold particular occupations over those who are from your caste and faith. And uh, we thought that that was a kind of interesting finding, speaking to, again, the kind of unusual dimensions of politics within these settlements. One of the issues that this gets us into is this question of patrons, right? Um, and not to confuse our listeners too much, but patrons who are those people who are higher up the political food chain, they also have to select brokers, right? So this is happening again, as we mentioned, at, at multiple levels. Uh, Tharak, let me just stay with you for a second. You know, you talk about how there are two attributes that really seem to matter, right? So patrons are rewarding brokers on the basis of loyalty and on the basis of efficacy. Do we have a sense of which of these attributes sort of matters most? Yeah, and just to, again, clarify for listeners, I mean, the way that we think about these political networks, there are these kind of local residents in the slum at the kind of bottom of the network. There are then those leaders who, who kind of emerge from within them, becoming these kind of intermediaries or brokers. And then that's the kind of world of politics and political network within the slum. These, these worlds then have to connect to the wider world of city politics. And they do so through these figures of patrons that Millen talked about, these like local patrons, are these local full-time political actors who are trying to integrate these vote-rich slum settlements into their political coalitions. And to do so, they have to decide there are all these local leaders who are bubbling up within settlements. As we mentioned, you know, there's like six to nine of them per settlement. Who of these do you decide that you want to kind of integrate into your political network? Do you want to bestow with a political party position? Do you want to kind of induct into uh, your organization? And that's a really crucial um, selection decision. Uh, because again, uh, if you pick right and pick well and pick a, a broker who has a considerable following, that could, you know, kind of tip an election for your party or for yourself uh, within a constituency. And so, uh, you know, when we talked to these political patrons, a couple of things emerged that I think were really important. The first was that patrons themselves told us, we can't install our henchmen uh, to become local leaders within a settlement. We kind of have to take as given who residents have selected. We have to choose from within that menu. So we can't say, oh, you know, my, that slum is really important. Let me put my cousin or my nephew or my son, let me send him to that settlement and, you know, make him the leader there. It has to be from one of these local options. The second is, okay, we're now faced with this dilemma, which is that we want a leader who's extremely effective, who's somebody who can deliver for us, who's popular with local, uh, with local residents. But we're also really worried that this popular person should not be someone who either wants to replace me or isn't somebody who is going to flip to my rival uh, and, and kind of, you know, cut, cut me off right before the election. And so, you know, that is a legitimate concern. I mean, in, in our survey, we find one in five uh, slum brokers openly saying, and this is a saying openly on the survey, so the real number might be much higher. Yeah, we switched parties. You know, we switched between the Congress and BJP, and it was in both directions, I should mention. It's not all going one way. Um, there are several other leaders who kind of, uh, Islam leaders who kind of remain kind of notionally independent and, and are kind of waiting to see which way to turn before the election. And so competition exists at this level too and creates a lot of uncertainty for these political patrons. Again, they're not just these all-powerful figures. They themselves are quite nervous about uh, all of this party switching and volatility. And so... Uh, you know, what we find is that they are very, very concerned with how do we know and assess who is likely to be loyal to me? 
And so one of the things we find in the book is they actually use party meetings, local party meetings, as an indicator uh, of loyalty. So, you know, the kind of meetings that they might hold, they actually pay attention and see who comes to those meetings regularly, again, often between the vote uh, and as an indicator of uh, of their potential loyalty. And actually, slum, slum leaders know this, and many of them try and get their way into political parties by showing up at meetings um, regularly um, and kind of signaling that, that you know, they're going to be loyal to, to this particular party. Having said that, despite, you know, this, this, this need for loyalty, what we documented in the book is to the degree that there's a choice, uh, patrons favor uh, the effectiveness of leaders again. So they too really privilege the competence of leaders. And in fact, Adam mentioned education. So we find that disproportionately um, educated slum residents become leaders. We also find a second layer of selection, which is among the crop of leaders, those with more education relative to other leaders also get promoted more within political party hierarchies, get selected more for party positions. And we argue in the book, this is not because political patrons have any great love of educated leaders, but because they know, and in fact, in, in interviews, they say, we know that those, you know, those um, leaders who have jankari and jagrupta, information and awareness, which we think of as very tightly linked to their education, um, they are the ones who are really going to be able to bring the crowd. They're going to be able to be the ones who can actually bring people up to vote. And that actually matters more to them uh, than kind of indicators of loyalty, because that's really how they understand their bread gets buttered. I mean, what's interesting, Adam, is that, you know, patrons are making this calculation about which brokers they're going to be responsive to, right? After you select them, right, you're still going to be inundated with with all kinds of requests. And, um, it, you know, it comes down to, in your argument, credit claiming, right? I mean, which uh, is, in, it makes total sense, but it's interesting to see it, how it's borne out in the data, which is essentially politicians are driven to supporting projects where they can easily put their name outside, right, on the front wall saying, like, this is brought to you because I put it there, right? Um, and, you know, one question which arises, and, you, and you, you touch upon this in the book, is, you know, how do you, how are you assessing as Anitha, right, who is a, a kind of a higher level, what kinds of requests are good for credit claiming and, and, and which are not? Is it just about kind of what is physical infrastructure? You know, how do you how do you see that play out on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know, you know, at least all three of us, and I'm sure many of your listeners, um, you know, you'd only have to spend a few minutes in an office, you know, of a politician and, um, you know, in, in India, anywhere in urban or rural India, I'm sure, to see, you know, the stacks of papers, the, the petitions that their constituents are bringing to them to solve, you know, this, this wide variety of problems, you know, that, that, that face voters. Um, and so, you know, in this last, you know, empirical chapter, we, we try to understand, given this daily barrage um, of claims that politicians in India cities face, many of which um, stem from these squatter settlements, you know, that we've studied because of all the problems that they face, how are they deciding, you know, how am I going to spend this very limited funds? How am I going to spend my limited time uh, to solve these problems? Because not all of them can be solved. Um, and so credit claiming, exactly as you mentioned, um, really sort of shined through as a major you know, explanation of this. Um, and, you know, India cities, I mean, even, be even before unpacking that finding further, um, you know, India cities are riddled um, with examples of credit claiming. You know, when you walk down streets, you know, and we would see this in, in the communities that we study on a, on a daily basis, there would be, you know, iron signs cemented into the ground, you know, saying, you know, this MLA or, you know, this ward counselor provided you this paved road, um, you know, water tanks um, with the names of politicians on them and posters plastered over them, um, you know, ration car drives, um, 
you know, medical camps, you know, where the politicians are, are sure to be there, you know, with, with posters all around them and their local party workers, you know, these slum leaders, these brokers, you know, flanking them on either side, handing out food, um, making sure that um, the politician can cut through, you know, what is the incredible ambiguity of, you know, the Sarkar, the states, um, to make sure that, the, that they know, that voters know that I'm the one that gave you this thing. Um, it may have involved all of these actors, everything from, you know, a, a junior engineer to a, you know, a water official uh, to the person that's, that's physically driving the truck out. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, politicians want to make sure that if I'm going to go through all this effort, that I can cut through all of that confusion and make sure that voters in these communities that are referred to by them as vote banks in the city, you know, these are crucial electoral constituencies to win over, that they know that I am the one that um, gave this. So in the setup in that chapter, we really try to um, emulate and understand the process of petitioning and claim making that comes from um, informal settlements. That these brokers that, that Tarek had discussed, you know, will oftentimes write a petition, um, oftentimes on letterhead, um, either from the letterhead uh, paper from their party or from their Vikasimiti, their development association of the community, um, and physically go to the politician's office, sometimes with a group of voters, um, to submit that petition. Um, and we really sought to understand in that chapter, given all of this different information that politicians face, who is the broker? Um, is, it, is this person of my party or an opposition party, or perhaps they don't belong to any party? Um, how big is that settlement? What are the vote leanings of that settlement? Um, they're, they're having to sort of uh, consider all these different moving parts in these petitions. Um, what really moves the needle um, in getting them to allocate funds to settlement A over settlement B? Um, and so, uh, you know, what we really find is this idea of credit claiming um, that gets to the nature of the good itself. Um, so, for example, in our in our um, experiment that we do, um, we find that water tanks, um, which are everywhere in these communities, um, it, um, in part because it's very difficult to extend piped water, um, but also in part because, um, you know, I think, you know, politicians, um, you know, this is a service that can be extended, that can be retracted um, when support dries up. Um, but um, in the in the context of credit claiming, you know these little water towers um, that dot the, the you know the skyline um, in these communities, um, they're ready-made billboards um, that politicians can put their name on, um, and and we find both quantitative evidence and qualitative evidence that it's precisely these types of goods um, that politicians will sort of choose because it facilitates their ability to say that I'm the one that gave this to you, um, whereas something like a paved road. You know, they can come in, they can do a ribbon cutting ceremony, they can hand out food. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not this thing um, like a water tank where residents have to go there every single day. It's a constant reminder of, um, you know, this is the person that gave this to us. We, you know, we're obviously incredibly dependent on this thing. Um, and, and so it, it's those sorts of goods in the distributed politics, you know, of India cities that are sort of most highly prioritized by, by politicians in their allocation um, because they can, they can tag it. So, so let me just kind of zoom out for a second as we kind of bring this conversation to a close. Adam, maybe maybe I'll I'll start with you. You know about the limitations of machine politics, right? Because so if, if somebody's out there listening to this conversation, they might be taking away from this that look, slums are these uh, amazing organisms of, of of local democracy. Everything works. Citizens get services. Brokers are responsive, uh, both to the politicians they work for and the citizens they serve. O obviously, it's not all sweetness and light in urban squatter settlements. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of precarity. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, tell us a little bit about what the dark side of machine politics looks like. Yeah, this is a really you know essential question 
um, you know, each one of the chapters that we've, you know, sort of moved through, you know, over the discussion seeks to understand the construction of these networks. Um, you know, who's being selected as a slum leader? Um, you know, among slum leaders, who are they selecting within their community to help? Um, you know, outside of the settlements, these patrons, these sort of elite politicians, who are they bringing into their networks? Well, well, each one of these decisions where someone's being selected, you know, someone, of course, is not being selected. Um, they're being excluded. They're being marginalized. Um, so in terms of, you know, the formation of, of slum leaders, for example, you know, 88 percent of our, the slum leaders in our sample, um, which, you know, is, you know, is representative, um, are men. Um, so only 12 percent of slum leaders, you know, are, are women. Um, and we know from a you know a vast body of scholarship and you know political science and related fields um, that descriptive representation um, you know is really essential in bringing um, you know the needs of particular groups in this case women uh, to the fore in these communities where you know so many problems you know can be seen through the, the um, through the prism of of, of gender um, and patterns of, of, of collective action. Um, we find uh, you know considerable penalty um, to candidates who seek to become a slum leader um, if they are Muslim. Um, it's, you know, it's difficult for us to, you know, disentangle from the survey data. Is that because of sort of generalized discrimination um, against Muslims? Is it because of expectations that, um, you know, we, this, we, would, we, we would like to have this person as our informal leader, but we believe that he or she might face discrimination by the authorities and getting stuff for our settlements? Um, you know, flipping, the, um, flipping it around to, to slum leaders and looking at things through their eyes, you know, new new entrants in the settlements, uh, those who don't have deep social connections in the communities, might be pushed aside and deprioritized vis-a-vis um, -vis those who who have those attributes. Um, and you know, we just talked about you know the the distribution of um, you know budgets and public spending in cities. You know, for every settlement that gets that water um, that water tank um, or gets that new paved road, you know, there's going to be nine others that don't get that thing. Um, so this is an incredibly fragmented politics um, that um, moves to political compulsion um, and leaves many people sort of off the table, um, excluding them um, from getting these, you know, absolutely essential um, goods and services um, in the city. Um, it's also a fragmented politics, you know, in terms of, you know, larger class politics and mobilization in the city. You know, everything that Tarek and I, you know, document in the book you know, it's, re it's really running along the lines of settlements. You know, once we think about, um, you know, the political life um, and political decisions outside of the settlements, you know, we're talking about things through the eyes of, um, you know, patrons in the city looking across their constituency. Uh, but really all these mobilizations, all these forms of leadership, um, all this collective action is happening to advance, you know, the interests of an individual settlement. Um, and so, you know, there is not inter-settlement mobilization going on. Um, there was, you know, some evidence of this um, in the 60s and 70s um, in Jaipur and Bhopal when the, the Communist Party was quite popular um, in informal settlements in both of the cities um, and engaged in a lot of inter-settlement mobilization to pu push for larger programmatic change um, between the state um, and low-income um, informal settlements. Um, but really by the mid-1980s, you know, um, during the tenure of Arjun Singh in Madhya Pradesh um, and following the Bhopal gas tragedy, um, and in Jaipur during this time as well, um, there really was an erosion um, of this sort of more, more class-conscious uh, forms of mobilization, and it gave way, um, you know, to something that we would, you know, could, could refer to as sort of patron clientelism that's, that, that's much more sort of, uh, you know, fragmented in the city. Um, and, you know, one other thing I'd like to mention, too, is that, um, you know, water, electricity, roads, streetlights, schools, you know, these are things that are, are, are obviously absolutely essential 
um, and these politics are yielding this, you know, for for some residents and not others. One thing that it it, it rarely yields, though, um, is property rights. Um, that politicians are loath um, and are hesitant to actually give a pata, you know, a title, um, and, and actually sort of formalize um, those communities with the assumption that the moment that you actually extend formal property rights, that dependency relationship is completely snapped. I mean, so many conversations that we had with politicians, you know, they, they would literally, you know, walk us through their constituencies, sort of saying, you know, this middle class area, you know, these people have titles, they have everything, they're not going to come out and vote. Um, but the people in the kachibustis, the slum settlements, um, you know, they're the ones that need things. Um, you know, that this is the bread and butter of our electoral politics. Um, well, the, you know, the ingredients of that, you know, start to you know break down um, when uh, residents of these communities begin to get property rights. Um, and so this is a very low-level equilibrium. And you know, um, I think, uh, you know, I think we're we're somewhat ambivalent, you know, in the in the conclusion of the book about. Um, what would it mean, you know, in a counterfactual world to sort of wipe away the sort of politics that we sort of study? Um, and, you know, it wouldn't necessarily yield one um, in which the urban poor are getting more. Um, it, it might be sort of programmatic governance that's even more sort of captured um, by elite or property middle class neighborhoods in the city. Um, and so, you know, you know, thinking through um, what, what alternatives are, um, you know, is, an, is a, you know, certainly an interesting sort of thought exercise. But you know, again, so just to underscore that, you know, this is a this is a very fragmented politics that's leaving a lot of people, you know, off the table. Um, but it's um, it's the politics that exists, you know, in these communities, and we're we're trying to understand it as such. So, so uh, Thark, maybe I'll just end with you. You know, at the end of the book, you reflect a bit about whether the types of political dynamics that you've observed in these squatter settlements. Uh, that you've studied for 10 years plus are going to persist into the future. And and you note two very big trends that could have an impact on urban politics, right? So the first is the kind of well-documented centralization of political power that we see in the kind of Narendra Modi era. Uh, and the second, which of course is, you know, <laughs> proceeds alongside to, it's not a totally independent force, is the consolidation of a kind of a Hindu majoritarian brand of politics associated with the BJP. You know, as you look into the future, um, uh, not asking you necessarily to predict the future, but how do you think these trends could disrupt the dynamics of urban machine politics that you document so so carefully in this book? Yeah, we know that prediction in our fields uh, is uh, fraught with peril, so I'm going to avoid that. And prediction, certainly in the Indian politics business, is also fraught with peril. But I think, you know, the, the two things that we reflect on in the book, and in some ways, I think this, you know, we end the book with the, these reflections because, um I, you know, both of us have been talking about also the kind of oddity of doing this deep dive into local politics um, and the vibrancy of local politics in India at a time where a lot of the national discussion in India is actually about the opposite, is about, the, as you mentioned, the centralization of power, uh, the rise in dominance of the BJP. Uh, and so, you know, how do how does the kind of worm's eye view that we've taken in the book relate to those larger currents? And, and how, you know, uh, what, what is the kind of relationship between these two forces? And I think, you know, one of the things just focusing on centralization, often the discussion on political centralization, and, and you've written about this, Milan, but much of it is framed in terms of center state relations, right, whether it's discussions of GST, um, or uh, the the kind of uh, current trends in political finance. A lot of that focuses on this kind of relationship between center and state, the debates on cooperative versus competitive federalism. But as scholars of local politics, we you know uh, we note that you know local governments in India, in some ways, have always gotten short shrift within this arrangement. Have always been kind of disempowered relative to both center and state. 
And within that, decentralization in cities has often been discussed as much weaker uh, under the 74th Amendment, much weaker in its implementation than un in, in Indian villages under the 73rd uh, Constitutional Amendment. And one of the interesting things has been that uh, there's been this broad assumption uh, by both, you know, everything ranging from kind of civic organizations um, to media to even scholarship, that part of the reason, at least, for the insufficient, um, you know, uh, devolution of power and decentralization in cities is because uh, poor populations, and specifically the urban poor, are insufficiently politically active to make decentralization work. Like a big part of decentralization working is local populations that can be active and hold their local officials accountable. And, uh, you know, there's a vision of kind of tight-knit village communities in India, you know, being able to do that. And, you know, without commenting on that, the, the converse has been this idea of this kind of fragmented urban population that is kind of uh, alienated from politics. Now, we clearly find that's not to be true. So that's a kind of insufficient um, grounds for for um, kind of uh, the failure of, 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 of decentralization in cities. But what we do note is that the prospects of more significant devolution, in some ways our book is saying, you know, urban poor populations are very politically active and deserving of more decentralization than they've been offered. But the prospects of that seem kind of weak um, given the larger national trends of fiscal centralization, but also crucially the centralization of welfare schemes, welfare scheme delivery, welfare benefit delivery, and the centralization of political attribution, the credit claiming that Adam was talking about. I mean, there's been much ink spilled on how a lot of the kind of credit for government programs increasingly accrues to the center and often to the prime minister in particular. Now, that you know, that kind of centralization doesn't necessarily preclude effective service delivery. You could potentially get effective service delivery through that system, but it does have political implications for the organizations we study. It, uh, you know, definitely has the potential to weaken the role of local actors. You know, so if benefit delivery is increasingly centralized and then, you know, directly targeting um, individual households as, you know, work by Arvind Subramanian and others about because this kind of new welfareism in, in India has documented, then what is the role of all these intermediaries, not just the slum leaders, but these local patrons, these local citywide actors, what is their role in this process? Um, maybe they will be relegated to um, kind of um, secondary figures. And I can imagine a lot of observers of Indian politics saying, well, that's probably a good thing, right? Like cutting out the intermediaries is going to reduce corruption, is going to reduce uh, kind of leakage and discretion. And perhaps that's true. But part of what we argue in the book is that it also weakens these local organizations that often serve as representative uh, buffers of these communities vis-a-vis -a, -vis, uh, a kind of often all-powerful state. And that, I think, is a less commented on potential um, of this kind of trend of fiscal um, centralization and political centralization more generally. Um, I think the second feature might be that if there's political dominance at the center, this might actually entice brokers to disproportionately cluster in one party. Um, or it might reduce the importance of you know, overall levels of competence or some of these other factors that we talk about in the book. Maybe all that really matters is your attachment uh, to the BJP or to whoever the local national dominant party is. And if that's the case, then again, it's going to shift the axes of politics that we describe in the book and kind of um, in, in important ways, kind of bend it away from these kind of local organizations, local measures of competence, and much more just kind of, are you with or against the central government? I think the second feature, which is this kind of rise of um, 
Hindu majoritarianism, um, I think the there are kind of point in the book is what is the kind of hardening and polarization, uh, especially in North India. Again, we're we're kind of focusing on North India, and I think it's important and uh, you know uh, the the day after the Karnataka election results to to kind of acknowledge that um, that you know in this the, the North Indian cities we study a lot of what our book is trying to document is perhaps the surprising inclusivity of the political networks in cities that they're often cross caste they're often multi faith. Uh, um, in nature, uh, we actually find quite strikingly that um, a, a considerable portion, nearly one in five Muslim slum leaders actually affiliate with the BJP, again, speaking to this kind of uh, multidimensional and kind of slight, you know, um, maybe uh, counterintuitive nature of, of local politics. But what is the future of those kinds of inclusive politics uh, at a time of kind of hardening of networks? Um, you know, there, we see some seeds for this possible, we do document a, a kind of prejudice or discrimination against Muslim leaders among slum residents, particularly Hindu slum residents. Uh, we also note an underrepresentation of Muslims in the ranks of uh, local elected governments in Jaipur and Bhopal. And we also see trends like, you know, a member of parliament from Bhopal is none other than Pragya Thakur, who's known for, you know, extreme and militant and off, uh, very anti-Muslim views. And so what is all of this going to entail for the future of these networks? Maybe these networks will provide somewhat of a, bu of a buffer against these national trends, but equally, a lot of this could be eroded uh, in, a, in a time of increasing polarization. And uh, I think uh, the jury is still out and would require yet another layer of data collection for us to be able to examine. So we look forward to 10 more years of study uh, to answer these two questions. Uh, my guests on the show this week are the political scientists Adam Arabach and Tarek Thatchel. They are the authors jointly of a new book published by Princeton University Press, Migrants and Machines, How India's Urban Poor Seek Representation and Responsiveness. Guys, congratulations on this massive achievement. It is not only a very elegantly written book, but but the kind of blood, sweat, and tears of of all of this field work, you know, the the ethnography, the surveys, the experiments, really comes through. I predict this will win many a, a book award in our field, as it as it well should. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks so much for having us, Milan. Thanks, Milan. Grant Tabasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.